Okay, folks, you're about to hear some new music. For about a year now, for the run of our podcast, we have been using some generic but fun um, music from YouTube from Kevin MacLeod, some appreciated sort of free use music. But we figured the audience is growing, you know, the uh, the we're, we're getting more in our groove. It was time we had some Socialist Shelf exclusive music. So I put out the call on Twitter.com, see if we have any, um, you know, anybody to help. And the Dirt Mage himself, Drew Mason, put me in touch with a fellow by the name of Solo Monk. Uh, you can find his content uh, at SoloMonk256 on Twitter. Also, Patreon.com slash SoloMonkArt. Um, and on uh, YouTube, youtube.com slash T-S-A-L collective. Um, we got to talking. I got to throwing out some concepts we have. And he absolutely came through. I mean, he really delivered, as you're about to hear. Um, it's fun. It's jazzy. It's us. It says socialist shelf. Read good books and organize yourself. And that is what we are about. The show about good fiction and changing the world. Um so, you know, um, we really appreciate Solo Monk. We appreciate the quick turnaround. Um, we appreciate his work. And I uh, hope uh, y'all go support him and hope you enjoy the music. Joss, any thoughts before we play the tune? Yeah, mad mad props. Mad props to Solo Monk, the solitary friar himself. You know, he absolutely hit it out of the park first try. And uh, he's also he's also an, an animator. I, I actually saw this before um, before he got into contact with us about the uh, podcast. He has a really kick-ass animation set to one of Michael Parenti's speeches. Highly recommend to go look that up. Absolutely. All right. And without further ado, the new Socialist Shelf intro music. socialist shelf radio all right welcome back to the new and improved socialist shelf i mm-hmm. as always am joss and uh here i as sometimes am jacob as sometimes yes yes we are you know we have to wear many hats we have to wear many forms many guises in our capacity as uh as socialist organizers something like and that. yes Yes, you know, to dodge, uh, you know, to dodge all manner of, uh, of you know, of repression, you know, of, of crabs, of, of crabs. Yes, crabs. Exactly. They do For, be pinching. Uh, they do. They do be pinching. Actually, I don't think in this book that they ever mention crabs pinching anyone. But, no, you know, no, one can no. presume they're getting pinched. Oh, yeah, they are pinching. And I ain't talking about Thomas. Mm-hmm. So, yes, this is the crab cannery ship this week. 
by uh, Takiji Kobayashi. Kobayashi Takiji in the uh, Japanese naming uh, naming convention. <laughs> they ate pension. I I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry that your 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 terrible pun got me. They ain't pension, but I'm not talking about Thomas. Continue. My apologies. There was um. I ran into a guy at the farmer's market at one point. Uh, at one point, this was way, way back. Who was like, "Hey, if you drop these crabs down your pants, you'll pin- they'll pinch you, and then you'll dance like a monkey." And so true. I that is. I that, mean, that, I guess I. You know, I take his word for it. I didn't. Uh, I didn't do it for obvious reasons, but you know, that's that's stuck with me for a while. As indeed, you lost this book, an opportunity. Yeah. As in, well, as indeed, this book will stick with me. So, Takiji Kobayashi. He was a socialist organizer in his day in uh, Japan, in uh, Meiji-era Japan. And I suppose in our, um, in the same fashion as our three-body episode, right, we have to get into the history of what's going on in terms of Japan's labor scene and in terms of Japan's uh, history, right? In, In terms of rising militarism and imperialism, in terms of increasing repression, there is in tandem a rising wave of uh, labor organizing, of socialist organizing and of uh, proletarian literature in, um, in the, in the uh, pursuit of disseminating these ideas. And of course, proletarian literature, a good way of explaining it, um, this quoted in Proletarian Arts in East Asia, an article by Heather Bound Strike. Um, Yes, literature was no longer to be a sentimental pastime, but an active participant in the development of society and the unfolding of history. You know, if socialist realism has a um, has a, a literary component, this is that right. So Takiji Kobayashi. He's born October 13th, 1903, in the village of Shimokawazoi, what is now the city of Odate, in northern Honshu. Uh, Japan has four main islands, Kyushu, Shikoku, Honshu, Hokkaido. Honshu is the big one. So his father was the second son of a small landholder. Uh, His brother Keigi, Takiji's uncle, invested the family's money in a business that failed. So they lost almost everything. So at the age of four, he and his family moved to Otaru in Hokkaido to earn a living helping Uncle Keigi at his bakery. Now, Kobayashi had to work at the bakery right out of elementary school, right? So his family history maps precisely to a point in Japanese history where a whole bunch of smallholders, a whole bunch of independent farmers are, you know, very rapidly proletarianized, right? Japan is very quickly uh, modernizing, right? Getting in line with the capitalist West. And so a whole bunch of smallholders and farmers are forced for the first time to become wage laborers. And I think I just to quickly interject, I think that's also important to note how um, much that that cycle vindicates kind of the Marxist theory of how capitalism develops. Um, And, you know, obviously there are more complicated and different versions of it. And, uh, you know, not everything is static. But it is interesting to see on the other side of the world, a country that, you know, pretty effectively was able to keep from being, um, you know, controlled by imperialism that was not turned into a colony like Japan, following a similar process of the feudal era, going to the capitalist area, the closing of the commons, the moving into proletarianization. Mm -hmm. It's I mean, it obviously has Japanese characteristics and it obviously is, uh, you know, unfolding in its own way. But it's so interesting to see um, how it how it mirrors the West and uh, how capitalism 
really is the same no matter where you are just with its uh you know own cultural characteristics oh yeah you know to move i mean of course you know japan has its own thing going on but like the breakneck pace at which it uh at which it sort of replicates the um the experience of the uh, european countries right in all its in all its uh in all its fascinating uh, aspects and all its ugliness as well as we'll get into um so yeah kobayashi is born in 1903 the very next year 1904 the communist manifesto gets translated into japanese portions of capital would follow three years later there wouldn't be a complete translation until the 20s but this whole time socialism's gaining steam as the country rapidly industrializes in the wake of the Meiji restoration the shogunate's abolished they open the country and stop having it be closed and yeah massive speedy proletarianization of the working masses so of course 1917 is the big one the october revolution happens the ussr would be invented five years later in the interim 13 countries invade russia to try and crush the bolsheviks Japanese troops would not leave Russian land until the Soviet-Japanese Basic Convention was signed in 1925 and Japan recognized the USSR. So all this time, Marxist works are being translated, disseminated as quickly as Japanese socialists can pull off, and this scares the shit out of its government. Because the years earlier, from 1905 to 1918, are referred to in Japan, I didn't know this, as the era of popular violence. Oh, wow. I didn't know that either. Oh, yeah. So the Russo-Japanese War has just ended in 05. Japan won, but didn't extract any war reparations. Uh, the economy is stretched thin. Food prices are, prices are rising. Labor disputes and strikes are growing much more common. Um, and you have as well, um, there's a series of incidents in Japan's history where there are coups or assassinations that rock the government. Uh, 1910 is the high treason incident, which is a socialist and anarchist plot to assassinate the emperor. And a central figure in this guy is in this is a guy named Shusui Kotoku. He's a big fan of Kropotkin. He's the guy who translated the conquest of bread into Japanese. Uh, he is hanged in 1911, and the incident has the it's there's there's some people who were involved and uh, other people who weren't. About half of the people rounded up and executed weren't involved at all. It was just an excuse to get rid of socialists. Um, but the incident has the Japanese state going, well, you know, our police aren't enough, right? We need, like, special police, higher police. And so... We need our form... own police with blackjack and hookers. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. With <laughs> blackjacks black aplenty, as we'll see. And uh... thus has created the special higher police, or the mm. Toko. And one of their nicknames is literally the Thought Police. Mm. So the era of popular violence culminates in the Rice Riots of 1918, and estimates of how many people participated in these riots, um, which stemmed from uh, price gouging of staple foods like rice, uh, they vary widely, right? Michael Lewis writes in Rioters and Citizens, Mass Protests in Imperial Japan, that... um, there, there, there aren't, there aren't, there isn't really a, a consensus. Guesses vary from seven hundred thousand people involved in the rioting to ten million, mm-hmm. um, which either way is a huge proportion of Jap- Japan's population at the time. Fifty-six million people, right? I mean, imagine like one and a half percent of the United States rioting, right? Mm-hmm. Like it would be seismic. Yeah, it's also, like, interesting to be living at that time and to go from a very agrarian, you know, economy where people are self-sufficient. And, you know, they maybe aren't always eating great, but they always have their rice. They always have their basic staple crops to being told, no, things will get better if we proletarianize. Proletarianizing and immediately your government saying, so, you know, we're not we don't actually have as much rice as we need. Can you imagine just how infuriating and, and just... I mean, among all of that, among the crushing economic whatever, it, 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 
you know, it, it's pissing me off just to think about it. You can only imagine why these people would riot. Yeah, of you know, and you, and you have the and you have the state saying, oh, well, you know, like, I mean, it's like people talk about substitution effects when they try and deny the um, the rising cost of living here. Right. right. You know, the state's going like, oh, you know, why don't you eat wheat instead of rice? And it's like you 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 can't substitute staples. You can't like it is it is astonishing to me how little things have changed in certain ways. So yes, mass mass rioting, mass strike actions, but the left is still relatively small and isolated, so there's not much of a political project sort of tying it together yet. But yeah, nevertheless, you have increasing tenant strike actions, labor strike actions well into the 1920s. This is the backdrop of Kobayashi's teenage years. So in exchange for working at the bakery, Uncle Kagi funds Kobayashi's higher education. He goes to the commercial high school. Uh, he graduates in 1921, goes to the Otaru Higher School of Commerce. So he's part of the proletariat, but he's also among people who are trying to educate themselves and eventually join the petty bourgeoisie. You might call him a professional managerial class type in aspiration. Uh, he compares the state of affairs later to holding dual citizenship, in his words. He gets into writing, he starts submitting to literary magazines, uh, he gets into labor organizing, and it's a good time to do so because... Remember Shusui Kotoku, some of his supporters, anarchists and Christian socialists mostly, found the Japanese Communist Party in 1922. Now, they're still around. Uh, they're the oldest party in the country, actually, though in principle they've abandoned revolution. Um, I mean, their politics are good, right? They're stridently pro-LGBT, pro-feminists. They're against imperialism and the um, and the American alliance. I recently um, watched a video they put out of an anime girl dancing saying, do you want higher wages? Unionize. Yes. <laughs> you, need, you need that energy, right? I mean, whatever it takes. So he, from the jump, yeah, they're anti-imperialist. They run a hands-off China campaign at a time of increasing Japanese imperialism. They get outlawed in 1925, so in fairly short order. So what's going on in 25 is that the peace preservation law gets passed. Uh, I mean, just let that marry in your head. Or like, peace preservation law. Doesn't that sound ominous this so what this does is this criminalizes criticism of the kokutai or the national essence of japan on pain of imprisonment for up to 10 years and it's written broadly enough that that can be applied to basically anything but it explicitly explicitly criminalizes criticism of the system of private property and it was enforced until the defeat of japan in the pacific war over seventy thousand people were arrested under this law the toko were given much broader powers to do this now this is the same year as universal male suffrage is implemented, right? So before that, maybe 2% of the population could vote. Women would not get the vote for another 20 years. So It's fascinating yeah. because there's actually people who call this a period of liberalization because of that. And that's mm -hmm. and it's such a weird dichotomy because kind of, question mark, but they're also doing this like proto-McCarthyist, not proto-McCarthyist, they're basically doing a parallel red scare to the United States, like first oh, yeah. red scare. Uh, it's fascinating, um, right. the dichotomy there. Well, yeah, because that's the idea. Like, they're they're scared that well, you know, if we let the masses vote, suddenly they'll do socialism at the ballot box, and we don't want that, you know. So back to Kobayashi, he's graduated in twenty four. He's working at the Hokkaido Colonial Bank, which facilitates investments in mining, fishing, farming enterprises in the island of Hokkaido on land seized from the native Ainu. Its literal translation, this was so funny to me, is Hokkaido Exploitation Bank. I love working at the Exploitation Bank. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, fir the first national bank of pure evil. That's me like trying to write fiction. It always comes out that way. I mean, it makes me feel good when in real life there are parallels. I love some of the literal transliterations that you kind of get from this. Um, so he he's 21 at this time. He falls in love with a 16-year-old girl named Takeko Taguchi. She, she, she's a prostitute. 
And this is really a pivotal moment for him because he realizes, oh, I'm attracted to a girl who's been driven to commodify her sexuality. And I'm working in a bank that's pushing people into those situations by doing land enclosure, privatization, you know, seizing people's livelihoods. So he starts writing short stories about the, her experience, uh, about the experience of people like her, uh, those left behind, Takiko and others. And he really starts throwing himself into organizing in the Otaru Harbor strike. This draws huge support from workers riding high off this recent wave of tenant strikes. He's designing posters. He's studying with farmers and laborers. He's very active in the campaign of this dude, Kenzo Yamamoto. He's a member of the Japanese Communist Party, Yamamoto is, which, as I mentioned, is outlawed. So he's running on the Labor Farmer Party ticket, which is a legal uh, left party at the time. But he's under JCP discipline. Uh, so Kobayashi writes a book based on that, Journey to East Kuchan. By 1927, he's the executive secretary of the Otaru Worker and Farmer Artists Federation. And so he's disseminating class consciousness through art. Uh, 1928, you get another incident, the March 15th incident. Big crackdown on socialists nationwide, over 1,600 people arrested. Roughly a third of them stand trial. Now, several organizations the Japanese Communist Party was proven to be involved with were disbanded, including the Labor Farmer Party. That same year, the maximum penalty for breaking the peace preservation law is raised from 10 years to death. Uh, now, only two people, uh, the, spy, the Soviet spy Rikard Sorga and his informant, the journalist Hotsumi Ozaki, were ever sentenced to death under the peace preservation law. Now... This is in part because only 10% of those imprisoned ever even stood trial. You're more likely, if you were caught, to just be tortured until you renounce socialism. Yeah. Uh, and the word Which is a was... common... Oh, Sorry. yeah. Yeah, yeah they, called it, they called it tenko, or course correction. And that was that's a common strategy in anti-socialist you know anti -socialist regimes um, across the world. Um, you know, uh, um, you know, just get somebody to renounce, you know, scare them, that sort of thing. You know, it, it it's, you know make reminds me significantly of places like indonesia and, and mm -hmm. stuff like that these like hardcore anti-communist regimes oh yeah you know whether it's whether it's you know physical brutality like that or lawfare you know as we're seeing in the uh in the rico arraignment right now yeah like they will the state will try every 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 trick in its book i also love to be executed under the peace preservation act <laughs> like love preserving the peace with like executions oh you yes know, no double think there so Kobayashi writes March 15th, 1928, in response to the incident. It's published in the leftist literary journal Senki, which means battle standard. Oh, that's, that's the cool. liter. Oh, yeah. No, it's badass. It it's the literary organ of the Japanese, uh, the Japan Proletarian Arts Federation. Mm. And its depiction of torture is what first puts him on the radar of the toko. Torture, especially in Japanese proletarian literature, as I'm reading, it's big, right? It represents the red line, right? The horizon that the state is willing to cross, you know? Right. In sharp contrast to how it's depicted in things like 24 here, you know, like something regrettable that's like, oh, well, you know, somebody's breaking the law, but like, we're happy that they do it to, you know, do what needs to be done. No, no. In Japan, like from the jump, they're like, no, this is this is fucked up. Mm. Uh, a, a quote from uh, March 15th, 1928. Um, when Watery was being tortured, he felt a fiery resistance awaken in him towards the indescribably despicable capitalists. He realized that torture is the concrete manifestation of the repression and exploitation of the proletarian class by the capitalists. And it spells it right out for you, you know? Yeah, he's he's one of those writers who will um, just, you know, he will just say the thing. You know, he, he's not 
I, I I love a good author that just is, is not particularly interested in subtlety. Um, this is, uh, and nor nor is he. Nor nor does he need to be. He did not live in subtle times. Nor do who we. The, who was it? That, who was it that said the subtlety is for cowards? It's a bit from Garth Marenghi. Oh, okay, got it, got yeah. it, got it. I mean, it, it applies here. It's a. Uh, it's from. It's the author, the fake author Garth Marenghi, who's a Stephen King like mm. bit, where he says, "I know authors who use subtext, and they're all cowards." Yeah, the same. That's the same fake interview where he says, um, "I might be the only person you've ever met who've who's written more books than I've read." <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a flex. Oh man. So. Okay, the following year, 1929, Kobayashi publishes The Absentee Landlord in uh, Chuo Koron, or Central Review. Uh, that's a really interesting uh, literary journal as well. In the 1960s, there's this huge controversy where um, they run a, a satirical cartoon that has the emperor and empress being beheaded. There's mm -hmm. a huge uproar about it, largely from like reactionary circles. Sure. Um, neither here nor there. Uh, so... Absentee landlord is about exploited tenant farmers in Hokkaido. It gets him fired from his bank job. Well, first he gets demoted from researcher to teller, then he gets fired. And it's because he names names in the book, right? Including wow. some of the bank's biggest clients. Uh, he's also briefly arrested that year. There's another incident, the April 16th incident. Um, I've seen one source suggesting that this was a turning point that led the Soviet Union to focus on exploring a revolution in China rather than Japan. I, I haven't delved deeply enough to really determine that. Uh, but Kobayashi doubles down. By late 1928, he'd started writing The Crab Cannery Ship, which there is the subject go. of our episode. It is inspired by a couple of things. Uh, it's inspired by a news story he reads about workers on a floating crab canning factory. They're treated horribly, and they sue their boss when they get to shore. Uh, he also reads a book by Yoshiki Hayama, who wrote a book a few years earlier called Those Who Live on the Sea. And that book was semi-autobiographical. Semi it's uh, written during a prison sentence for union activity aboard a coal-carrying ship. So, Crab Cannery Ship is serialized in the May and June 1929 issues of Senki. It gets a lot of attention. There's a theater adaptation that premieres in July of that year in Tokyo under a different name. Uh, the book sells 15,000 copies. It gets banned. It continues to be circulated in abridged form, but the full text won't be permitted in public again until after the Second World War. So, in 1930... Kobayashi gets elected to the Central Committee of the Reformed Japan Proletarian Arts Federation, which is now the Japan Proletarian Writers League, kind of a big tent organization of writers in the labor movement. Uh, he's arrested and tortured later in the year on suspicion of donating to the JCP. Uh, he's imprisoned in August. He tortured again in prison, released on bail in January 1931, finally joins the JCP in October. Now, there's two other texts with the printing of the book that I sent you, Jacob. He writes them at this time. Uh, he writes in 1931, Yasuko, about two sisters who get into the labor movement. Uh, following year, he writes Life of a Party Member, about his work with the JCP. He's giving lectures. He's raising funds. He's organizing all over the Tokyo area, all while being hounded by police. Now, from early 1932, he starts living totally underground. And the ensuing year, of course, is it sees the establishment of the public of the puppet state of Manchukuo, right after the Mukden incident about the the um, the false flag incident that leads Japan to properly invade China. Mm -hmm. um, this is what some progressive Japanese historians consider the real beginning of the Pacific War. Uh, February twentieth, nineteen thirty three, is where it all comes to a head. He goes to meet with a guy that he thinks is a comrade. It's actually a spy from the Toko. They beat the shit out of him until he dies. His lower body is literally swollen black from internal bleeding. And the Toko announced that he died of a heart attack. No hospital will do an autopsy. They're too afraid. 
but his work live so he's yeah he's 29 when he dies yeah just just to give you just to give you a sense of uh of you know time and place and he already and, and i mean was quite prolific considering his short stint he was writing because he wasn't even writing his you know he doesn't get into writing until his 20s oh yeah um, yeah so no he, he's he's prolific you know in in the short span of time that he's actually writing a yeah. and amid the backdrop of all the organizing he's doing b you know he yeah he never he never slept and, uh so his work is around for decades um in 1948 the full text of crab cannery ship is finally published in japanese um and he has a he has a fairly um i mean he has an enduring legacy in japan he, uh there's a film of crab cannery ship in 1953 it wins best cinematography at the mainichi film awards there's a remake in 2009 it's on youtube if you want to go look it up uh there has been a manga version uh, a couple of stage adaptations it was published in English now in 1933 as The Cannery Boat, in 1973 as The Factory Ship. Uh, in Japan, it sells maybe 5,000 copies a year. Until 2008, in which year there's a global financial collapse, as we recall. It explodes in popularity at that time. 500,000 copies are sold that year. Wow. Again, Japan's population at the time is 128 million. Nothing to sneeze at. You know, if you're not exactly a yeah. time people are spending money for no reason either. No, yeah. <laughs> Quite the opposite. They're pinching pennies, but 500,000 people saw it necessary to purchase this book. Oh, yeah. Like if, if you assume that everybody who picked up the book read it through to the end, like that's one in every 256 Japanese people reading this book. And that's provided they're not passing it around to friends. Oh, yeah. Oh, libraries. yeah. And it spawned it spawned expressions, right? Uh, Kanikosuru, uh, meaning to slave away. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the book's Japanese title is Kani Kosen. So his so there's a documentary about Kobayashi's life. There's a musical uh, been written about his last three years. A library has been founded in his name. We, of course, are reading the 2013 English translation by Jelko Chiprish. I assume that's how you pronounce it. Yeah. And there's quite a good intro. Um, there's like definitely like in the version that we are reading, um, there's quite a good intro from him and then also from... Um, and then also just like on the thing, on 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 the text in general. You you're talking about uh, Komori Yoichi? Uh, yeah, but I but the uh, I, I'm just saying there's a uh, the the bit that says translators preface gives some like great context to it. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I I highly recommend I highly recommend not skipping the opening. Mm-hmm. So the crab cannery ship, it's so there's a really unique character to the setting and the labor of this book as laid out in the prefaces, right? So the floating crab canning factory of the title is not legally considered a ship, so it's not subject to maritime law. But because it's at sea, it's not subject to labor laws, right? Because it's not technically a factory either. Right. And, and and it's operating in extraterritorial waters between Japan and the Soviet Union. So even were it subject to maritime law, it's not subject to the maritime laws of either of those countries. So it's this perfect limbo where workers can be treated however you know, and yeah, it, I, I want to read a quotation from the intro um, that's totally. like written about the book because it's very useful mm-hmm. um, context. Quote, the crab cannery ship was written on the basis of a painstaking investigation into an actual incident that took place in 1926 in a letter to and apologies on any of my pronunciation. Uh, Kurachara Korohito dated March 31st, 1929. The author provided a detailed discussion of seven points concerning the novel's intent. First, its protagonist was not a single character, but rather a group of workers. 
Second, there was no depiction of individual personality or psychology. Third, various efforts had been made with respect to form in order to facilitate popularization of the proletarian arts. Current efforts in this direction had the air of a superficial intellectual attempt at popularization. This work, by contrast, sought to be overwhelmingly worker-like. Fourth, it dealt with a unique form of labor taking place aboard a crab cannery ship. Such labor involved a type of exploitation typical of colonies in underdeveloped areas. And it had the advantage of making transparently clear not only the condition of Japanese workers, but also the international military and economic relations constituting these conditions. Fifth, the novel dealt with unorganized workers. Sixth, it showed how capitalism, while seeking to keep workers unorganized, was ironically causing the workers to spontaneously organize. Seventh, even though it was said that the proletariat must unconditionally oppose imperialist wars, few workers understood why this was so. To meet mm -hmm. this need, the novel had to touch on the economic foundation of imperialist wars, the machinery of imperialism that sets the army itself in motion, end quote. Mm -hmm. And well, one wonders, you know, one wonders, um, and I'll make this joke once and not make it again. If his disgust with, you know, after all researching into crab ships is why he got so into hot dogs. Kobayashi. Okay. <laughs> I won't make the joke again. Go ahead, Joss. <laughs> well, I'm a... <laughs> I had to do it once. I don't know. <laughs> oh, my God. I almost forgot. <sighs> All right. Do what were you going to hot... Do you think they make hot dogs out of crab meat? I I mean, I think hot dogs might already. We don't even know what. I think they're probably made out of everything. You know, you read, you know, we, we read The Jungle. We, mm. we... No, wait, you weren't on that episode. Uh, I but, was not but, on that episode. But I read The Jungle. I know that the hot dogs could be made of anything. Speaking of which, this book is remarkably similar to The Jungle. In a lot oh, of dude, the prose is fucking visceral as shit. Yeah. Uh, not just in the sense of, you know, its subject, which it is. It's a highly researched book about meat packaging. You know, yes. there's that. It's about the most exploited people in a society in this, you know, these people who were not proletarianized who became proletarianized mm -hmm. as your guess was is as an immigrant um who was more you know living off the land not only that but it, it also has this overwhelming arc of going through the horror and showing how it necessitates socialist organizing um and you know i looked into it and i didn't see any evidence that this book was in any way influenced by the jungle um which you know I, I doubt it would be, you know, the, the distance and the language barrier. And of course, not that, you know, not that he couldn't come up with this concept on his own. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's very clear, but it is remarkable that these books, you know, were written 20 years apart in very different conditions and yet are sending a very similar message and talking about a very similar human cry of misery. Admittedly, yes. this book is more proletarian oriented in a general sense as it's not focusing on like a single worker mm -hmm. and a single family um which i think makes it very interesting and very few authors would be able to make that work and kabayashi really does yes well and i'm glad that you brought up the fact that you know it's unorganized workers yes right and it's it's um it's 
I mean, it's unorganized workers, right? They, these are not workers with access to socialist ideas, except for maybe some of the students in the book. But nevertheless, the imperative to organize and struggle against your against your uh, you know immiseration against these conditions, it transcends um, knowledge of theory. It transcends, indeed, as we see, language and culture, right? Yeah. I mean, the the bit that we'll get into where they meet the uh, where they meet the Russians is my favorite part of the book. Oh yeah. And in the novel, I mean, like from the beginning, and I say novel, it's really a novella. It's it's barely longer than a short story. Um, mm -hmm. How many, I don't know how many words it is, but it's, you know, it's like a handful of pages, um, mm -hmm. like like 60 or something from what I was reading. Um, the first line is, buddy, we're off to hell. Mm -hmm. um, and, and to be clear, in this translation we're reading, which I thought it was quite a good translation. Um, it's... It's right off the bat. Like everyone knows they're going into the shit. There oh, are different yeah. people who know what level of shit it is. Some people have done it before. Some people are fleeing other shitty jobs. Like there is a guy who is a minor. I say a guy. We don't have his name. Very few names in this novel. And that's mm -hmm. on purpose because these people are, you know, it is they are being represented as a mass um, that is, I think, works on two levels. On one level, it shows how dehumanized they are as mm -hmm. the proletariat. But on the other level, in a subversive way, they are then able to form a singular entity. Once again, the tools used to oppress become the tools used to unify. It's very clever in that way. Yes, yes, exactly. You know, they are they are that single sort of amorphous mass that ideally can find some way to to shape itself. And it's not perfect. You know, they stumble along the way. But that's uh -huh. the thing, right? You, you have to you have to keep trying and you have to engage in in, you know, you have to try and fail in order to succeed. You have to open yourself up to that possibility. Right. Um, and among again, you know, the pros, I'll, I'll read from this uh, first book here. You can you can really you can really just immerse yourself in it. Uh, steamships with red bulging bellies rose from the water. Others being loaded with cargo leaned hard to one side as if tugged down by the sea. There were thick yellow smokestacks, large bell-like buoys, launches scurrying like bedbugs among ships, bleak whirls of oil soot, scraps of bread, and rotten fruit floated on the waves as if forming some special fabric. Blown by the wind, smoke drifted over waves, wafting a stifling smell of coal. From time to time, a harsh rattle of winches traveling along the waves reverberated against the flesh. It's very mm. the similes and metaphors in this book hit consistently. A lot of mm. likes, a lot of what. Uh, my, one of my favorites is much later, but it says the people are sleepy and their heads are not going back and forth like pumpkins rolling around. It's the the level like very some of them even odd like talking about like ship bulging bellies. If, if you're mm. imagining they're pregnant with some like cursed child or something, um, it's 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 very interesting. Mm -hmm. But I yes. interrupted you. Go ahead. No, you didn't. You, you didn't. <laughs> the um, the crab cannery ship is we're introduced to it in the very next pa paragraph. The Hakomaru, mm -hmm. uh, a sailing ship with peeling paint, its anchor chain lowered from a hole in its bow that looked like an ox ox's nostril. It's I mean, and just to just to reiterate, like these ships are. It says later in the book they're they're basically bought from. Um, they bought from like the army and other and other like private sources. Yeah, it's like war surplus and like just shit no one else is using. Yes. Um, and they're not safe. In fact, an identical ship to theirs, like their sister ship, sinks in like the first 20 pages. Oh, um, yeah. and, and theirs gets very close. These are not safe. They are cheaply bought. 
um, and by by a company that has no use for the workers, and in fact um, insures them for a lot of money on the assumption some are going to sink, and they're going to make a profit on that end. They're making profit on the front end. They're making profit on the back end. It oh, yeah. highlights over and over. This is a incredibly profitable industry, and that's worth noting. Um, this industry, because it is at the uh, periphery, because the workers here are mostly like from you know not the main islands, not the main cities. A lot of these people are either immigrants or, you know, displaced, uh, you know, sort of call them peasants. That's not exactly the right word, but like displaced, you know, people who are living on the land. Um, because of that, they can hyper exploit them. And be and then again, because of the things Joss was saying, because there is no legal framework of regu regulation of this type of thing, which is, of course, very done intentionally it makes the point that they can extract the maximum amount of value here and of course all capital seeks to extract the maximum amount of value but due to the power of labor um and due to you know um things like optics and whatever which they need to sell um there are certain concessions that have to be made the closer you come to home the closer mm -hmm. you come to the imperial core now those things get scrapped over time as capital gets desperate for a greater rate of profit but because japan at this time is an imperialist country and because they have this periphery around them and because they have this sort of mass of people that is not seen as like a member of the urban proletariat or whatever they can draw more from them um and get more out of it which is you know simply the nature of capital and just to be very clear is what is done today um to a scale never seen in human history uh, right now. I mean, from the Congo to Latin America, I mean, we can go on and on. And I know listeners understand imperialism on a certain level, but it's worth noting, like what is being done here is a process that is replicated in every system, basically of production everywhere in the entire world, in the global South by uh, the U S of A. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, it's, it's global unequal trade. You know, it's, it's Niger, um giving its uranium to to France at garage sale prices right you know yeah. what is it like one in every three light bulbs in the country is uh, is lit by a uh, Nigerian uranium yeah yeah in yeah, France whereas less than 10% of Niger has access to electricity oh, now yeah. that is currently as we speak which is in 2023 um some things seem to be changing but that is a very um you know that is a very fluid process so i won't make predictions but I will say solidarity to Niger in their fight for liberation. Hundred percent, hundred percent. The 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 troops are on track to leave the country. We will see how that transpires. And solidarity to the workers as they try to survive this shithole that they've been shoved into in the crab cannery ship. Because holy hell, don't they like call it the shithole? Like the it's, place it's that literally yes, yes. Their quarters they they call it the shithole. It is filthy. It is dirty. There are bugs everywhere, like lice, bed bugs, fleas, just like visibly swarming God, on every scenes, surface. Just describing them being eaten alive and. They're just like, are we just going to die from these bugs? And frequently, oh my some, God. frequently they do. You yes. know, they get they get diseases. You know, they get they get malnourished. You know, like they're not allowed to wash. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which there is an irony to be surrounded in water and not allowed to wash. Oh know? God, I didn't even pick up on that, but absolutely, yeah. Yeah. You know, water, water everywhere, and never a drop to drink. You know, absolutely. And Kobayashi, of course, interjects um, without even without even really disrupting the prose. I think he interjects and says, "Look, you know, this is the this is the background, right? This is the theory that we're working with from um, page twenty four here, uh, twenty three, twenty four. Uh, 
The task of feeding their families, he's talking about the fishermen, impossible despite working in the fields from before dawn, had forced them to come here. They had left the oldest sons behind, still short of food, and sent the daughters to work in factories. Even the second and third sons had to go somewhere to work. Masses of such surplus people, like beans scooped up in a pan, were driven away from the countryside and flowed into the cities. All of them dreamed of saving up a bit of money and returning home, but once they began to work in Hakodate, Otaru, and other cities, they struggled like fledglings trapped in sticky rice cake until they were thrown out of work as stark naked as the day they were born. They could not go home again to survive the winter in snowy Hokkaido, where they had no relatives. They had to sell their bodies as cheaply as dirt. Though they had done it over and over, they would calmly, if such a word is appropriate, do the same again the following year. No joke, I had that exact quote written down from the very first sentence word you started with to the very last word. That's crazy. But like, it's 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 the exact condition they're in. It's like what I was saying, it's this very surplus this this surplus population that the um, capitalists realize they can exploit a ton because where else do they have to go? They've given everything they possibly can, you know, at the altar of capital, um, and 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 they want you know so badly to return to where they came from. They want to go back to this previous way of living. They want that's like they want to go back to not an easy life of subsistence farming. They're like God, don't don't you don't you miss the days of subsistence farming? Mm-hmm. Um, which like, I've actually been listening to Mike Duncan's Revolution podcast about the Bolshevik revolution um, in Russia. And you had a very similar population there of people who were seasonal um, proletarians is what they called them. People who would go and work in the factories and then come home for the plant planting and harvesting. Um, These people like, I mean, they yearned for the villages. They wanted to stay there, but they couldn't because every year they were being pushed out further and further. And because Mm -hmm. everything got more and more expensive because they knew they could do that to them. So these people became more and more slowly crunched into proletarianization, Um, which, you know, that obviously like that actually was kind of the key that was able to activate some of the peasantry in Russia. And like sort of these people became a branch um, between the proletariat and the peasantry in in Russia in an interesting way. Um, but in this case, this process is even kind of further along um, in this book, whereas kind of the dream of returning to the village is dead, right? Like they, it, it, there's, it even says like they like swapped their land to like land that's just clay like mm-hmm. it's bad they've they've completely ripped these people off um and 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 it's them their families they are just scrapping to get by and they are what i wrote down a bunch of washed up people hung over visceral angry and traumatized and through it all the manager tries to frame this as some kind of nationalist struggle one of the few named characters in the book the tyrannical asshole manager asakawa more like and asshole Kawa. Am I it, right? Legit, legit. No lie yeah. detected. <laughs> and he says in the very first chapter that it's better to commit honorable suicide than to lose against the Russians. Mm-hmm. You know, he mentions he mentions this recent Ruski craze. He's here talking about the Bolshevik Revolution, right? He says, look, don't try it. Don't organize or you're a traitor to the country, right? Mm-hmm. Not the guys who are price, uh, price gouging on food, which led to the rice riots. The workers are the traitors to the country by organizing for better for better conditions, for wages, you know, for any semblance of dignity. You know, you know, it's 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 not your it's not your your own betterment that you're um, that is your highest uh, that is your highest calling. It's uh, oh, beating the Russians at fishing. And, and notably, you know, Japan kind of is acknowledged 
globally as a superpower in 1905 when they trounce Russia in the Russo-Japanese War. Oh, yes. I mean, it is embarrassing what they to for Russia what they what gets done to them. Um, Russia and so sends Jap- the Baltic fleet around the world and <laughs> they lose it gets in the first annihilated fight. at Tsushima in a single day. It's unbelievable, like what gets done to them. Um, and, and and the thing is. Japan, so much of their prestige comes from that. So much of their uh, power comes from that. And notably, that war was actually, as wars always are, horrifying for the populace of Japan. And there is actually very little war surplus that comes out of that. They don't win and say, we get a lot of good stuff. It's mostly clout, which Mm -hmm. is interesting because that is what they're still riding on. Even though since then, they have fought with Russia again and this time failed to achieve their aims and overthrowing the Bolshevik Revolution. Admittedly, it wasn't a full-scale war at the level of 1905, but there was still fighting and they were pushed back. And now Russia is modernizing at a rate faster than Japan after this socialist transformation which is terrifying to the japanese naturally um and because you know they are sort of scrapping for what direction do we go in what do we do they're highly militarized what can they do but this sort of nationalist push and you know they don't have much if anything but scraps to offer these sort of these sort of um proletarianized peasants and these uh immigrants and these people forced to work in these conditions but they can sell them on this concept of honor they can sell them on this concept of like you know uh not god it would be god and country here but you know obviously um for for japan but like following the emperor and following you know religious tradition and and mm-hmm. and and, 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 you know, hearkening back to this culture, you know, he's even talking about ritual suicide. He's hearkening back to the samurai and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. They're talking about you should slit your belly and cast yourself into the sea. And it's interesting because this is the same thing that will be used um, to drive the Japanese into Korea, um, to drive the Japanese into China, and to um, drive the Japanese to fight with Russia and, of course, the United States in World War II, you know, and – and, and, that we, we, we need not expound on what happened with World War II, but the um, sort of the death drive of this of this system that can offer nothing but more death. It's actually interesting. I don't give a lot of props to Orwell usually, but George Orwell in 1984 has when he talks about the um, the uh, totalitarian state based out of Japan. Oh, East Asia. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he calls it their their party is called death worship, and that mm-hmm. is. Very similar to the energy here. Yeah, it's a certain, I mean, we were discussing earlier about, because there's debates in scholarly circles about whether you can call Japan fascist, and there's good arguments on both sides of that. Like, it's, because fascism is, I mean, it's not like European fascism, right? It's not mass-oriented necessarily. It's not meant for, like, popular consumption in the same way that uh, that Nazism is. It doesn't fundamentally restructure the state. You know, it just builds on the existing Meiji constitution until the fall of the country, right? But, you know, nevertheless, it still has that strident anti-communism, right? It still has that um, it still has that uh, inculcation of national pride based on this uh, based on this glorious past. And it is still a drive because of internal crisis to conquer people outwards. And had they been more successful, they would have just kept conquering until they collapsed under the weight of their own contradictions. And honestly, if you didn't even know the history, you could read this book and be like, oh, yeah, that's what's going to happen to them Mm -hmm. (laughs) just from the information here. It is interesting the the place of the emperor in Japanese history because like yes. you don't 
to my knowledge, you don't really see an effort to like become the new emperor. Like he's just he's an institution in and of himself, and any fighting any fighting takes place, um, you know, below him, right? Oh, you know, I'm going to be the shogun. I'm going to run Japan, but the emperor is still going to keep being the emperor. Right. And indeed, like I mean, the workers the workers have that as well. Like there's a line in um, here in chapter two where they're like, you know, the work the the emperor is above the clouds. You know, he can do what he wants, but if he tr- but like. You know, if he tried that shit that the um, that the uh, manager pulls, right? No, that wouldn't be okay. At least until they have their mini Bloody Sunday, mm, um, which because yes. that was, I mean, you know, to bring it back to Russia, that was a very similar mindset of the masses about the czar. They were like, oh well, we hate all these other guys. We hate the minister of the interior, or whatever. But we can go to the czar in the masses and give him. Wait, what is this? They're killing us peacefully. Okay, well, it's 1905 time. That's what happens in Russia. And in this book, you know, spoiler alert for the end. Um, the um, I love to say that, even though, like, obviously, we do the plot. Um, <laughs> at, at, at the end, the workers replace face repression from the people that are supposed to be their people the navy the representatives the forces of the emperor yes because because of the uh, state yes because of the because of the military uh tension between japan and the new ussr of course there's a destroyer following them around yes that is important it's actually interesting because it's a shadow right because mm. they are in this in these waters that are contested waters between the ussr and japan because they're very crap rich and uh yeah, this destroyer is following them around like a shadow, and notably, the workers are like, oh, hell yeah, it's the destroyer. Those are our guys. Those guys are here to protect us. Those guys, mm-hmm. you know, they have this nationalist fervor um, because that's what they've been sold on. Uh, that's that's all they have. That's what they cling to. At least they think that's all they have until they realize they've got each other. Yeah, you know, like it's 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 despite despite, you know banding together like that you know they they're like okay well there is this institution that's in our corner right there's something that we can go over the manager asakawa's head and appeal to right wrong Mm. do you want to talk about what it is like to live and work on the crab cannery ship oh boy it is maybe the most miserable thing that i've ever read like there's 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 elements of it that i've seen elsewhere joe abercrombie gets into it in um in his in his second uh in his second trilogy um where he's talking about the um the uh uh, factoryization of his setting but like it's it's i mean from time to time the ship's entire body shuddered like a feverish child all sorts of objects fell smashing from shelves things bent and squealed the ship's sides boomed colliding with the waves the constant throb of the motors ringing out from the engine room transmitted its vibrations through the motley utensils and sent mild tremors through bodies uh skip a bit skip a bit the chilling cold penetrated the laborers laborers clothing and turned their lips blue as they worked the colder it became, the more furiously a fine snow, dry as salt blew, whistling against them. Like tiny shards of glass, the snow pierced faces and hands of the laborers and fishermen who worked on all fours on the deck. After each wave washed over them, the water promptly froze, making the deck treacherously slippery. The men had to stretch ropes from deck to deck and work dangling from them like diapers hung out on a clothesline. The manager, armed with the club for killing salmon, was roaring like mad. It and, you know- sucks! Yeah, it's bad, and it, you know, it's very similar to the jungle in a lot of ways. Uh, the, it 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 makes me think of the scenes where Yargus is freezing cold working the factory, but it's at sea too, right? So mm-hmm. at all times you could sink or fall off the ship. Um, and in a way, the um, 
you know, there is the repression of the state, obviously, and and of the like sort of the goons of the boss in the jungle. But there is nothing like this character of Asakawa um, mm-hmm. in the jungle. This guy is he is fully bought into the bullshit he is the representative of the company and so he bosses the captain around he's like i'm the guy i am he he's he's literally cracking the whip he's walking around with the he's walking around beating people he waves a gun around sometimes he shoots it in the air to show he can um when people disappoint him he does all kinds of shit to them like at one point he beats a guy like bloody and locks him in like a bathroom until he almost dies um and then they pull him out and he has to work yeah, immediately. And then, yeah, just draw, keels over. He He's constantly threatening people. Obviously, there's double standards at all times. He's a huge hypocrite. He says, we don't have enough water for y'all to bathe, and he is bathing every single day. He says, we don't have enough food for y'all. Stop gorging yourselves. And he is eating good. He's drinking and, like, sleeping till past noon because of Oh, yeah, hangovers. like, you know, company company bigwigs come aboard at one point midway through the book, and, and you know, they have the food to entertain these, uh, these rich assholes, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, not to not to feed people decently. I mean, and he's you know, a he's a you know a, a goon in like an, an, an a thug in a like obviously almost cartoonish way. Like he is a representative of the company. Um, you know, hard as it gets. Uh, you only have like one moment where you get inside his head, and he says, "Wow, I need to stop being the kind Buddha to these guys because because <laughs> yes. he's uh because they like get mad at him." Um, and because they're and because they do a work slowdown, he is basically um he, he is basically irredeemable. He is like pure evil. That said, you know, in positions like this, these were real guys. Like they mm-hmm. they find real guys to do these jobs. Like this is this guy sounds cartoonishly evil, but there are people who crack the whips in the world. And I would call back to Parable of the Sower, these people do the calculation where it says what if the only only options were you to you were slave or slave driver? Which would mm-hmm. you call? Oh yeah, in a but hundreds of people, somebody's gonna choose slave driver, and this guy did. Oh yeah, I mean you know that's where you got capos in fucking Nazi death camps, right? You know people who would people who would uh, you know police and uh, repress their their fellow Jews, right? For some semblance of um, of you know rising in this horrific uh, hierarchy, you know that's where I mean. In the uh, in the SS, I believe, you know, like they they selected for, you know, psychopathic tendencies. Right. You know, mm-hmm. uh, drug addiction, alcohol addiction was not to be considered a uh, an automatic deal breaker, you know, because they needed people who could like consistently numb the uh, the brutality that they that they would carry out. And notably after Asakawa puts that one guy through like hell and not locks him in the toilet and and, and all this horrible stuff. The cabin boy and the student have a conversation about it. And the student, again, unnamed character, and this line gets repeated later, says, this is not somebody else's problem. Mm-hmm. And I like that. I love that. This, this is not somebody else's problem. This is, yes. this is our problem. This is live. There is, you know, the, the protagonist is collective in nature. Yes. Um, I mean, other than other than the other other than um other than Asakawa, there's I believe two named characters. There's Miyaguchi who dies very early on, and then there's another character. Who's the one that uh who's the one that dies later on? Yamada. Mm-hmm. The other character, Yamada, who dies later on and and his death becomes a rallying point, a cause celeb for um for the workers. Yeah, um, you basically get to be an individual in death. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes <laughs> Which is exactly. interesting. But 
aside from that though there do emerge personality you know as in any struggle right there do emerge strong personalities there do emerge leaders who have nicknames right they don't have they don't have names that we know but you know they're referred to by oh you know this is the student this is the cabin boy this is, this is uh, the stuttering fisherman the stuttering fisherman yeah this is this is uh don't act big you know after after the guy who says that you know, so there there do there do exist the sketchings of identity among mm-hmm. among these workers as they as they achieve class consciousness. And how can and, you and, not? Mm-hmm. No, go ahead. Well, I mean, how can you not eventually achieve consciousness of of your class when you have a guy with a fucking salmon club walking around going that look? It doesn't matter if you die, but if we lose a boat, we're fucked. Yeah, and they indeed do. Uh, well, and and they interestingly enough do lose another boat, like a full sh- or not a boat, a full ship. The and he's Memorial. like, chill with that. Like they could go and save him, and and Asakawa is like, nah, man. Like we'll get We're money on, a time on the table. insurance. But when they lose an individual boat, like a, a fishing boat, he's freaking out because that is not insured. Mm-hmm. Um, not even worried about the dudes on the boat. Notably, where did the guys go? Well, they had a brief run-in with some Russians. They yeah. washed up after the storm on the shore of uh, Russia, uh, of the Soviet Union, and were you know taken in into a village. And Joss, I think you said this was your favorite part of the book. I really enjoyed this as well. I, I love it. I love it. Let's see. Where's the uh, yeah page forty-five to forty-six? They they get taken in by this uh, family that's living in this uh, village, this like rural area. And a little bit later, some, I don't know if it's party men or if it's just uh, Russian army dudes, it's not really that specific, but they have broken Japanese, right? Mm-hmm. And they come and they tell the workers, hey, look, you're being fucked over. Uh, let's see. Okay. I'll read an excerpt from here. Um uh, It was a jumbled sort of Japanese with words out of sequence, scattering and staggering about as if drunk. Uh, all you, sure thing, no have money. That's right. All you is poor. That's right. So all you is named proletariat. Understand? Sure. Uh, rich man's do this all you. He grabbed himself by the neck as if in a chokehold. Rich man's get more, more big. He indicated an expanding stomach. All you, no good, get more, more poor. Understand? Japan, no good. Working people, this. He frowned, making a face as though he were ill. Rich man boss, this, <clears throat> he strutted about. And it's, that's, that's, you know, again, he doesn't speak the language all that well, you know, of course they don't know Russian, they don't know Russian, but the concept is very easy to translate, right? The concept transcends uh, language, it transcends culture, it transcends, you know, it, it transcends all these barriers because these, the experience of being, of being sorted into these classes is more or less universal. And I love the uh, level of like explanation that these just sort of, you know, presumably not particularly important Russians are able to give. And I say not important as in their lives are not value, but like these aren't, you know, you know, high ranking party members. These aren't intellectuals. These are just people who have like received some education, who mm-hmm. have seen how their country has been transformed by revolution, despite all the hardships they've had to go through, uh, including hardships inflicted by the Japanese, mm-hmm. um, notably, uh, especially in this region, um, and that they're able to develop that solidarity immediately, first of all. And second of all, that um, 
they are able to articulate this in very simple terms, even with the language barrier, is great. It reminds me of, you know, Ho Chi Minh saying the average Vietnamese rice farmer understands dialectics better than uh, American professors. Yes. Um, and, and that's exactly what it is. And that also shows the sort of I won't use the word enlightenment because of what that comes with, but the sort of the level of raised consciousness mm -hmm. that comes with a socialist society. Um, and these guys are able to take this back. And people ask them, and it is funny because of obviously the movie, but they say, "Are have you been turning red? <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> he, you know, obviously uh, different. They turn into they, red pandas and they go back and they beat the shit out of Asakawa. That's true. Oh, that would be awesome. But yeah, it's a quote. This, the men vaguely thought, is probably what was meant by the terrible phrase turning red. <laughs> but if that's what turning red was about, it seemed to make perfect sense. Right? Yeah, exactly right. Um, it's a, you know, it's a, it's like when, um, you know, you'll see on Fox news, Oh, you know, these people, these people want healthcare for everybody and they want no more war. And they're like, you're making us sound really cool. Mm -hmm. my, yeah. my, my, my favorite line I'll just interject here is, yeah. um, proletariat number one, great proletariat. Number one. Great. I love that. Um, and that's, that's important. That's the mindset <laughs> you got to have. They then, you know, they continue to go through hardship, but because Despite these few guys having this experience, they are, you know, they're not instantly having their little revolution. They're still going to be going through this. There's still misery and filth. And mm -hmm. uh, I'll say the guys, it's it's notable. You know, this is not a book where the workers are these like sort of valiant or, or perfect like Dickensian sufferers. Right. Um, no, no offense to Charles Dickens, but like, let's be honest that his, <laughs> his sufferers are perfect angels, but there are no tiny Tims on this boat, mm -hmm. right? These people are like dudes who are influenced by their society they came from and who are made worse for it because suffering does not make you a good person. Um, you know, it despite you suffer. Yeah, exactly. They obviously hard drinkers. They're obviously very crude. When a woman comes on board the ship, several of them are very, you know, obviously like lewd with her. Several of them are like trying to have sexual relations with, you know, some of the younger people on the ship. I don't know if it specifies the age, but it. it well, a lot of the applies. workers are a lot of the workers are fourteen or fifteen. So when it says the younger, some of them are having sex with fourteen and fifteen year olds. Some of these adult men, which is obviously <laughs> no, don't need to say that. That's horrifying. But but they but they are and and like you know to imply because they like want a woman so bad like it is these guys are doing this stuff they're talking shit they're cruel to eat themselves mm. and to one another that that they're, they're not all you know pedophiles and, and and harassers but they're like these people are among them and even like the kindest among them are still these guys who will in a in a moment scream at each other and, and and fist fight each other if they get a, a drop of liquor in their system they'll uh when they get an opportunity to see a movie at one point they'll like scream every time a woman comes on scene <laughs> like they'll they'll like fucking do the wolf howl and say awuga awuga uh, on a crackly black and white ass they pull out a mallet hit themselves woman. over the head with it and then their yeah. ghosts come up and they're like you know eyes pop out of their head yeah no like that almost essentially happens and which i will like mention that because there is like a moment where they get to have a celebration because of ten thousand um barrels and like some company guys come through or whatever and they have like this moment but even 
even the movies that they're shown, uh, especially the American movie, is a movie about the establishment of the West and the building of the railroads. And like mm -hmm. a guy who worked on the railroad who works so hard, he becomes a, a tycoon. That's what um, you can aspire to, right? That's, yeah. what they, that's what they sell you is you become part of this machine and you get to marry the like governor's daughter or whoever. Exactly. And they're also selling you on this American mythos, which is like conquering the untamed wilderness, which is, you know notable because uh a lot of these guys come from the quote-unquote untamed wilderness yeah. a lot of these guys come from the japanese colonies and to be clear these guys are kind of like this movie's bullshit like they know that they, they enjoy seeing the woman because for aforementioned reasons mm -hmm. um and they enjoy not having to work for like an hour but like they 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 harass and harangue the guy who's trying to explain the plot of the movie. <laughs> they laugh at it. They say, well, if that guy, if that guy thinks he's working hard, I work way harder. Um, but it is interesting. And also like, it's notable. Like I, I, I wrote down, um, they're watching a movie about the ending of blood Meridian. Um, but like, they're watching this movie that's supposed to be aspirational, which is about the conquest of the West um, in the United States, which comes with its own horrifying implications of which Kobayashi is, Despite, you know, his probably lack of access to, you know, a lot of scholarly information and historical information knows in broad strokes what's going on. Yes. Yes. You know, this is a shot. This is a, you know, he doesn't have a lot of time to talk with the United States, but he gets his shot in. And for that, yeah. uh, hats off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, and indeed, you know, later on, like it says, even the blockheads and drunkards see the wisdom in organizing, right? Yes. You don't organize with people because they're not blockheads and drunkards. You organize with them because they're exploited, right? As uh, Karina, uh, Karina of the PSL, our, our vice president candidate currently, yes. Um, yes. vote for Claudia and Karina said once uh, at a conference I attended, we do not support the poor because they are good. We support the poor because they are poor. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Because when you speak of liberation, right, you know, the first thing out of the mouth of some people is, well, you know, if you don't if you don't have these people under control, like if they break free, like it leads to, you know, rape, murder, violence, all the, there needs to be some assurance of safety to the oppressor before the oppressed can go free. Right. I mean, that argument was used against the abolition of slavery. It was used against the overthrow of apartheid. It's been deployed to my face against Palestinian liberation. Right. Mm -hmm. And like when Kobayashi depicts the fishermen and all their sin and all their vice. Right. You know, it's again, CLR James and Black Jacobins very frankly discussing the violence of the uprising slaves. It's the lingering shots of civilians and children in the battle for Algiers before the bombs go off. Right. Liberation is messy people are messed up by their conditions and if you support the lib if your support for the liberation of an oppressed class is conditioned on the good behavior of everybody in that class you don't truly believe in their liberation you know exactly right i mean i keep coming back to the fucking victor hugo crow like where darkness shrouds the human soul there will be sin committed the guilty one is not he who commits the sin it is he who casts the shadow quote for our year man um, very early and, on and and, and if if they can if I uh, the indications are correct. Quote for probably next year too, mm -hmm. um, uh, and going forward. But what do you it, call it? The cool zone. The cool zone. Um. So basically, the workers are starting to get wise between their a few people's brief experience with the Reds. I do want to tweet. Oh, sorry, I want to touch ahead. on very briefly before we move on. Um. There's that line from chapter three that really sticks with me that like yeah. when we t when we tell people back home about this, they'll never believe us. Yeah. I mean, it's that's the strength of that's half the strength of the ruling class. Right. Is that these narratives don't emerge. Right. Is that they control the narrative. You know, like, I mean, 
you and I were both at the UAW picket lines, right? Like mm-hmm. down at the Stellantis plant in Morrow. You know, I learned well, the workers were telling me, yeah, we don't have air conditioning in this plant, right? Yeah, and, like people and a are plant sh- with like hot machines and shit running. Oh yeah, yeah, and, and like ten hour you know, shifts in the winter. They have they have heaters to a degree. It's not enough, mm-hmm. but like people are people are shocked when you tell them that they literally don't know. They don't know what conditions people are working in just an hour away. And speaking of the hypocrisy of like the manager in this book uh, at that same plant, guess what? The corporate offices that were attached to the plant had air conditioning. (laughs) Mm -hmm, (laughs) Um, mm -hmm. It's real, folks, and it's here. Um, But yeah, the workers are starting to get wise. Um, They're not, you know, unionized or anything yet, but they're starting to get frustrated. They are so tired, they start to do work slowdowns. Mm -hmm. This, at first, is not a uh, politically conscious process. This is just a few workers saying, dude, I'm just not going to work that hard today. And then the other workers saying, well, fuck you. If you're not going to work hard, I'm not going to work hard. And it's Um, reflected in the environment, too, right? On page 57, there's steam blowing out of a pipe because shit's about to boil over. Yes, and so at first they do that and then they're like, wait a second, we can do this. And, and, you know, uh, at first, you know, um, Asakawa is able to like, you know, whip people back into shape and push people. And he comes up with competitions between different sectors of the workers to try and divide them and like offer them things. But I love, I love oh, yeah, that. Like the, the prize for finding Miyaguchi, right. The, the dude who gets locked in the bathroom ultimately is two packs of smokes and a hand towel. Yeah. It's, and it's remarkable what he like uses to try and divide these people. But even be, but because of his own like greed, he's not even able to like offer that much. That which is an interesting point. He certainly could offer more, but because he's so stingy, he's like, nah, that that should be enough to offer them to get them to turn on each other. And maybe briefly it is, but not for long. And these guys start to have this consciousness, which leads leads Asakawa to put up grind set quotes around the uh, <laughs> ship. Um, I wrote it down. But they put up a um, – it says a clumsily handwritten sign had been posted to the bulkhead beside the table. One, anyone who complains about the food will never become a success. Two, treasure every grain of rice. It's a gift of blood and sweat. Three, put up with discomfort and pain. And one can imagine those quotes like superimposed over like a video of The Rock getting out of a Lamborghini and just being on like an Instagram grind set page. And it's pretty much the same. And of course, this is carefully chosen because you have the rice riots not that long ago mm. in Japan, like we were discussing. Because and, 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 and because it is corny and silly, but he is resorting to the tactics he knows, which is um, – It's and, a pizza you know, party. Yeah. Exactly. It's a it's a pizza party, but with, without even the pizza because he's mm. too stingy to offer it. He's like, hey, don't you like the the shitty, you know, the shitty filth that y'all eat, which is like, I think it said like rotted fish that they basically salt so you don't taste the rot. It's unbelievable. Um, you know, while they're actively um, gathering food for the masses, you know, mm-hmm. notably or not for the masses, but, you know, for 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 cons- popular consumption, they are eating like filth, right? As well filth. as as well as a tithe to the emperor, right? Mm-hmm. You know, even even you know for for this uh, for this highest echelon of society, you know, it's it's it it derives from this uh, exploitation a that is you know ultimately just as tainted as anything else, you know. And I and toward the end toward the end, like when people start getting really start really getting their blood up, it's like you know what, fucking mix some rocks into the emperor's portion. What do I care? Yeah, exactly right. And and so things. Really, you know, you're saying they're about to boil over. And then we have the death of Yamada. Yes. Um, Yamada is a man 
Goku dies of uh, Barab- Baraberry. Uh, it's, not a, yeah. it's not a disease I had heard of. Is it basically scurvy? Like essentially? Yeah. It's, it's a it's a vitamin deficiency, is my yeah. understanding. Yeah, vi- vitamin vitamin B one. Um, but he 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 dies basically of malnutrition and overwork, which they are all, to be clear, pretty close to dying of malnutrition and overwork. Um, but he he dies of it. The men hold a vigil for him, and it's like at this point that they begin to talk about organizing themselves. It's at this point of great tragedy, um, and and to be clear, a tragedy that they all see very possibly about to happen to themselves. That lights a fire under their ass which this book you know makes the point of how movements happen which is you know there is a build there are people who are spreading you know good the good word like you know like the student like the cabin boy like the guys who met the reds but um there it takes a consciousness shifting moment Mm -hmm. to really and, and honestly several consciousness shifting moments to get yourself into a revolutionary position yes um it it it's it's very well articulated and put. It's beautiful. The 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 fu- the the scene where they have the the funeral to wake for the yeah. um, for for Yamada, right? And notably, like the stuttering fisherman finds his voice, right? He doesn't stutter once as he's given this eulogy. Uh, I don't know the sutras. I can't console Yamada's spirit by chanting sutras. But I've been thinking a lot, and here's what I think. I thought about how much Yamada didn't want to die. No, to tell the truth. I thought about how much he didn't want to be killed. There's no denying that Yamada was killed. So who killed him? I don't need to tell you. You know who. I can't console Yamada's spirit with a sutra, but we can console Yamada's spirit by taking our revenge against his killer. I think that now's the time we must swear to Yamada's spirit that we'll do that. That's exactly right, and that's what they're going to do. And uh, and who is the killer? The killer is the company. The killer is the people who've exploited them, who are giving them the bare minimum, who are putting them into these conditions. And the killer is personified by Asakawa. Mm-hmm. And and in and in rallying around the, I mean, in de- again, in death, the workers have names, right? And in rallying around Yamada's identity, the workers reclaim their own and forge a collective one, indeed. And by chapter eight, like leaders have emerged, right? They got slogans, better not act so big. Yes, I love that. And they mm-hmm. start to have coordinated slowdowns. The slowdowns that were once by necessity are now political in nature. They might not self-understand them as political, but they are. They are now like to get back at, you know, the company and they are to, you know, build up to their aims, to flex their muscles. And when they work together, they, you know, no amount of beatings is able to get the work to keep up and they in 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 Asakawa starts to feel the heat. I love how they wander into, you know, those moments of uh, those moments of consciousness and clarity, like without having read, you know, you know, without having done the reading, because, again, you know, you come to these consciousnesses through struggle. Right. You know, right. And you can find it set down in words later. But like, I mean, right at the end of chapter seven, I believe the cabin boy says straight up six or seven. The cabin boy says straight up, look, you know, all these wars are fought by rich men for the division of the world and the resources like he hasn't read state and rev, but that's basically it. That's exactly right. And at this point, um. We see the proof that courage is social. You know, Asakawa can wave his gun. He can beat people. But if everybody around him is acting in a certain way, he's got to contend with that. And you can take that beating or, you know, even more extreme, the torture that, you know, um, that uh, Kobayashi will also talk about. You can take that in in a social setting. It, it, it something that would be impossible as an individual can 
can be experienced. You have consciousness growing in leaps. Um, at this point, the boat captains, the people who are running the individual fishing boat, have to decide which side they're on. Um, this is kind of, um, I, I guess I best compare them to like just like managers, basically. They do mm -hmm. not own anything right they are getting paid maybe a little more maybe a few more yen an hour or whatever these guys are getting paid by um but and, and but ultimately um they are still exploited but they have to decide do they want their position of being slightly higher up and slightly better privileges or do they want to side with what is ultimately their class and it says about a third of them side with the uh workers and about two-thirds of them side with the bosses mm -hmm. um which in my experience, my limited experience with labor organizing, about, about, about right, about those numbers. When you talk about managers, I'm not talking about like corporate people, to be clear, but like, you know, like shift managers and things like that. Right. Um, people who, to like be clear, are still the proletariat. Like, I don't want to, there I, there are some like weird people who will be like, shift managers at Chili's are not the proletariat. Like, that's insane. <laughs> right. I mean, yes, yes, they are. You know, like they, they're given access to, you know, more of the, more of the mechanics of, you know, like they set payroll, you're right, they set schedules and whatnot. But, some you know, them, ultimately, yeah. yeah, but ultimately, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're working with tools, you know, given to them to mm. to you know lord over people and uh, and divide, right? And, they and can yeah, go the intention way. is to yes. drive them apart from each other and to mm -hmm. select people that will be the best stooges of the company. Precisely. Um, and then I want to read this quote, um, and it's kind of long, but I'm going to read it anyway. Shoot. About growing consciousness. Quote: One night, a conversation taking place in the shithole. To be clear, that's where they sleep. Took an unexpected turn. A boat boss happened to make a cocky comment. Though he was not being especially arrogant, the rank-and-file men took offense. And the fisherman he had been talking to was a little drunk. What did you say? The fisherman suddenly shouted. Who the hell do you think you are? Better not act so big, you fucker. When we're fishing out there, it'll be a snap for a couple of us to toss you into the sea. That'll be that. This is Kamchatka, you know. Nobody's going to know how you croaked. No one had ever spoken this way. Now he roared it out in a hoarse, booming voice. Nobody said anything. All other conversation abruptly broke off. Yet such words did not spring from reckless bravado. Fishermen who till now had known only servile submission quite unexpectedly felt a tremendous force thrusting them forward. At first they were bewildered. Gradually they realized that their own power, whose presence they had not suspected, was manifesting itself. But are we capable of making use of that power, they wondered. Of course they were. Once they understood it, a wonderful spirit of rebellion filled their hearts. The very hardships of the agonizing work that had been wrung from them turned into a splendid foundation for their defiance. Now the manager and his ilk could go to hell. They were elated. This new feeling suddenly enabled them to see their worm-like lives vividly as though illuminated by a flashlight's beam. The phrase, better not act so big, grew popular with everyone. When provoked, they grabbed better not act so big you fucker they were quick to say it at other times too but among the fishermen themselves no one acted big end quote and it's just like you know hell yeah <laughs> mm -hmm. oh yeah no you 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 get you get so attached to these guys right there is there is incredible camaraderie that develops out of the misery 
Mm-hmm. They're the boys, you know. They're 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 forming up their their own sort of you know it's their own sort of uh you you know union here, and they try to establish some structure. You know, they try to establish some leaders that, and their plan kind of half works sometimes, and not all and not completely, but because of these moments and because of consciousness growing these guys who thought like they'd never be a part of this are sucked into it and it says even as it grows there are some guys who are like totally out that are like following because like this is this is what's happening now and guess what those guys will benefit too Mm -hmm. those guys will win too and and to be clear those guys will then um tell everybody that they were always all in because that's how it always is right but at the end what does it matter because they're all they're all in and they this builds to a confrontation. Mm, I love like in, in this last chapter here, right? Where they're, where they're risen each other up. Like it's, it's so human, you know, where they're getting together, they're making their speeches. Some people are ready and fired up. They've been practicing their speeches. I've been practicing what I'm going to say. Like, and people, you know, they go up and they have all these big pronouncements and people are like, yeah, we get it. Move on. We're we all agree. Like there's some people who have stage fright and their comrades are, you know, laughing and joking and making fun of them, but very good naturedly. Like, uh, oh, the Stoker's delegate was the next to get up, followed by the sailors. The Stoker's delegate began to speak in words he normally never used, and he grew flustered. Each time he became stuck for a word, he blushed crimson, tugging at the hem of his overalls, thrust his hands into holes in its worn-out fabric, and fidgeted. Noticing it, his listeners roared with laughter and pounded the deck with their feet. Okay, I'll quit talking, but brothers, give those scumbags a good beating. With that, he stepped down from the platform. He received a mischievously overblown ovation. He should have just said that last part, joked someone, triggering a fresh uproar of laughter. Absolutely. And this, they get together, their leadership, you know, walks up and surrounded by the guys who are now on strike. They declare their strike and they confront Asakawa. And dude does not even get a chance to use his gun. They take that thing and Asakawa, you know, he's got a few guys behind him. He's got the captain who's mistreated. He's got a few of the uh, boat captains. But for the most part, you know, he's alone. And these dudes are bigger and stronger than him. They, you know, they rough him up a little bit. And they're like, here are our demands. And they make them um, fresh out. and, And the people are feeling their power. And unfortunately, there is a small complication. This is all happening under a brilliant sunrise, yes, but, you know, I mean, I mean, I love that change in the environment, A. You know, you yes. know right off the bat that there, is a, there, that there is a sea change here. But, yes, as you say, the uh, the destroyer is still around, yes. and it's uh, it's steaming to the, toward the ship to, uh, to put down the rebellion, although not... Yeah. So, all, there are people who see this inter- intervention right away for what it is, but there are other people who are like, you know, directly, look, you idiot, how the hell can a warship that belongs to the Empire not be on the side of the people who belong to that same Empire? Right. Right? Because, you know, again, they can, they're, they're like, okay, we can go over the manager's head and appeal to, to these guys who know what's up. These guys who are also bros, presumably, and know they fix bayonets and they charge. Right. And here they have their miniature version that I said earlier, reference earlier, of, of their bloody Sunday, of their moment where their faith in the institution, like in this sort of high level way is shattered their faith in the emperor their faith in the military their faith in japan as a project Mm -hmm. is shattered and they say and it's an important quote nobody's on our side except our own selves Mm -hmm. and to be clear not our own not my own self because that's different nobody's on my side except my own self no nobody's on our side except our own selves Mm -hmm. plural 
as in our class, the proletariat, which is the vast majority. That's a lot of people on our side. But we also have to understand what our side entails, what that looks like, because these guys fix bayonets and they arrest the leaders. And they're like, and it's, I mean, I kind of got a little bit of a chuckle after out of it. They were like, oh, maybe it didn't make sense for us to send our best guys and say, what's up <laughs> to the guys with bayonets and get arrested immediately. But that's what I love about this part, right? Because it's an immediate self-crit, right? It's yeah. reflection on what has been done wrong and a resolve to do it again, but better. Yeah, they they, they manage to do it better. Um, but they have, a, but I think it's important for us to like kind of dwell on what happened there because this shows the position of the military and in this case kind of synonymous with the police mm -hmm. with capital. This shows that the forces of state repression and state warfare, despite, you know, how much we are asked to identify with them, you know. Thin blue line, rah rah, God bless the troops, all that. They are from the top commanded to defend private property and imperial interests. And when the masses of people, a lot of them, by the way, former soldiers, according to this, a lot of these guys fought in the Russo Japanese War, it says when they go up against these guys who are, you know, most of these guys with bayonets. From their class in a class position, in a in a how much they get paid, where they were born, when they go up to these guys and these guys are wearing the uniforms and taking the orders, these guys are the enemy. Um, these guys are their class enemy. And let's be clear, there have been plenty of during socialist uprisings moments where the soldiers changed sides and joined the masses. You kind of have to count on that happening mm -hmm. to a certain degree um, in a socialist revolutionary situation. But to understand the military operating as the military and the police operating as the police will always be against you, um, which is also part of the reason that you can't have, um, especially as an American or someone in an imperialist country, um, patriotic socialism. That's why yes. it's antithetical to the project. If you have any interest in anything outside of your very immediate self, not in, in that case, that's myself, not ourself. Mm -hmm. And they realize the only people with us is ourselves. And then they say, um, and of course, once you do revolution, right, you know, you can't depoliticize the army. Sure. And, and, and then they have this bit, they say, and these are quotes, these guys are talking. It says, no doubt about it. If we keep working like we are now, we'll really get ourselves killed this time. To make sure nobody has to be sacrificed, we all have to strike together. Let's take the same approach as before. Like the stuttering guy used to say, that that's one of the guys captured. The most important thing of all is to join forces. By now, we sure know how much we could have accomplished that time if we'd stayed united. And if they still call him the destroyer, let's all stay united and get handed over together without leaving anyone behind. That'll help us even more. You may be right. Though, come to think of it, if that happens, the manager will be in very hot water with the company. It'll be too late to send to Hakodate for replacements, and the output will be way down. If we do this right, it might turn out even better than we expect. It'll work out just fine. Besides, it's fantastic how nobody's scared anymore. Everybody's ready to take on the fuckers. Frankly, there's no sense hoping for some future victory. It's a matter of life or death right now. Well, let's do it again one more time. And then it's a line break, and it says, and so they rose one more time, mm -hmm. exclamation point. 
and that's vital. And, yes, and, and that's that's beautiful. Yeah, you know, not only not only that it happened at all, right, but that you don't necessarily know you you just know that it happened. You know, the contours of it, how it exactly plays out. You know, you have the broad strokes of uh, what they would do differently. But, you know, you have to have that faith going forward that it will happen. You know, the crucial, you know, the crucial thing is to uh, reflect and try again. Absolutely. It's amazing. And also just straight up how things go. There are losses. And guess what? Those losses aren't complete losses unless you let them be. The losses are lessons and they are steps forward often. I mean, you know, take Russia, the example right there next to Japan, 1905. I mean, there are gains made, but the working class is, you know, defeated in their uprising. There is not a socialist government. There is not even, you know, mm-hmm. the liberal government they wanted after that. However, the people feel themselves flexed. They see what they did wrong. They see what they did right. They see that it's possible. They see the czar is weak. And guess what they do? A little over a decade later, they create the first socialist state. Mm-hmm. Um And that also, you know, that's on a grand scale, but even on a small scale, a strike. Okay, great. We messed it up. The strike didn't work. Let's do another strike. (laughs) You know, like you could do it. And and I love the point. It's awesome how, like they say, it's awesome how, like, we're not afraid anymore. Like we saw it. Oh, that's what they can do. Okay, great. We can handle that because, again, courage is social. If you were by yourself and you were surrounded in bayonets, yeah, okay, you're going to be terrified naturally. Mm -hmm. But if you were surrounded by the masses, ourself, as they say, it might be bad, but you are going through it collectively and it is for a higher purpose and you know you have the capacity to win. And this book does throw in a supplementary note on the end, which is basically like a um, a um, credits scene, like a where are they now post credit scene where it's just like, and the strikers got what they want and the guys got free. And, uh, you know, the manager Asakawa, he um, he got fucked over by the company and he didn't get paid anything. And the fishermen, the young workers and their comrades were released from police detention. And um, hell yeah, rah, rah, long live the revolution, basically. And again, you know, it's stressing. I mean, uh, I don't know if they, I don't know if this is very if this is very critical. But uh, interestingly, the manager was overheard crying out, God damn it to hell. Those sons of bitches were screwing me all along. You know, so he comes to, you know, some form of consciousness, you know, God knows if it'll ever lead anywhere, you know, but more importantly, this fourth point here, right? The fishermen, the young workers and all their comrades were released from police detention and went on to engage in various sectors of labor equipped with the precious experience of organization and struggle. You know, as arduous as this was, you know, as much misery as had to be suffered through to reach this point it's only step one. It's a long road. It is a hard road. It is frequently a miserable road, but it's one that has to be walked nonetheless. And it's one that can be walked, you know, you know, even crawled along. Yeah. And, um, you know, notably, it doesn't put it in there, but reading between the lines, one can assume right after this experience, Asakawa uh, embraces the immortal science of Marxism, Leninism, and vows to make Stalin look like an anarchist. Uh, I'm I'm imagining Asakawa as a communist and he's like this is going to be the most authoritarian form of communism (laughs) I can possibly conceive they're like all right calm down buddy (laughs) 
it is weird that like because I'm thinking like the the first guy to translate capital into Japanese ultimately went on to become a hardcore fascist, which is wild to me. There, like, there's yeah, that's it's bizarre, but you know, so 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 it goes. Some, some peop people some some people are really into you know the state for the sake of the state, right? Rather than you know working to working to abolish class, right? Working to working to devolve the basic functions of governing eventually among the people in, and work for common prosperity, you know? Look, Asakawa seems to enjoy his club. He seems to enjoy yep. his gun. Yep, exactly. We will, um, you know, we'll find a position for him fighting on the front lines against the fascists. He, he'll, he'll do well there <laughs> if, if, if he wants to join the team. You know, why, why cut off your nose to spite your face, right? Yeah. You know, you'll find No, admittedly, I don't know that Asakawa deserves a redemption arc. <laughs> he's, he's, he kills some guys in this book. Um, I mean, you know, it's, like they say, he, he doesn't kill them by putting a gun to their head and pulling the trigger. But as they say themselves, through malnutrition, through overwork, this, that is a murder nonetheless. It, it is a type of murder that is normalized um, here and in our society broadly and capitalism broadly. One loves to talk – you know, people love to talk about um, – you know, deaths under repressive regimes. Um, and, you know, notably, the, those things should be talked about. But people don't like to note our own regime is quite repressive when people die on the streets, when they starve to death, when they when they die for lack of health care. Or, or when a million care. people plus die of COVID because the yes. government chooses to let it rage through the populace rather than engage in, you know, hardcore targeted lockdowns, right? When, yeah. you know, People on both sides of the uh, of the aisle, to the degree that they are separate sides, say repeatedly, oh, the pandemic's over. Oh, the pandemic's over. Oh, you know, you won't get it if you're vaccinated. Oh, you know, you're immune. Like it's the the fish rots from the head, you know, no doubt. And, and and also, you know, we could go on. We could talk about imperialism. We could talk about sanctions. We could talk about um nothing pay for hard work that's going on, you know, all across the world to even greater adeep degrees than it goes on in the United States for the uh, benefit of Western corporations. And we can say they were not, they didn't die. They were murdered. They, he, he didn't, they, when they talk about him, they say he didn't want to die. He didn't want to be murdered. And mm -hmm. these people were murdered and these people deserve, you know, not just their vengeance, but a world in which they don't have to be murdered anymore in which right. no one has to be murdered for the sake of another person. And of course we know that that's not necessary. There is a part in this book where the managers are too hung over to, uh, to work and the guys work and they're like, yeah, that was a pretty good day at work. We just like vibed and we got our work done. And there is nothing to imply that they didn't do the job fine. That's the interesting thing. I like that because actually the crab ship runs fine without Asakawa walking around with a club uh, they just if they're allowed to take breaks and trust themselves and run the thing themselves the cans the cans get stacked like it still happens yeah the um, club's not know, there to make that happen the club's there to make sure that you know them rising up doesn't happen exactly but one asks the question isn't would the factory still be productive the question is what would be done with the factory and its surplus value mm -hmm if they were allowed to run the shots and our answer cool things really cool things please let us do it um and if you don't we will strike and uh eventually we will run everything it's gonna happen it's inevitable <laughs> <laughs> so you know this book novella call it what you will i really enjoyed it um i, I mean it, it feels weird to say i enjoyed it because there are parts of it that are just absolutely harrowing we got into it just a little bit but honestly we could have dwelt more on it but it, you know it would have 
Um, it, it doesn't feel like masturbatory in the book, but like it could, it would feel borderline to talk about. Like if we went over every scene of of horror, it would feel that way. Now he it manages to pull it off in a, a principled way in the book, but it, it is truly horrifying. It is truly um, nightmarish. But this light on the other end, this particular style of writing, which is first of all just very good with all the uh, similes and analogies and everything and metaphors, but also just um, you know making a character of the proletariat mm -hmm. very cool very fun i um really enjoyed it and i completely see why this thing took off in 2008 makes oh, yeah. perfect sense to me oh yeah no it was it was 2008 it was not 2008 you know and you what you say about making a character of the proletariat is exactly right you know it's it is making the reader aware of their state of, of their station in the mass of people yeah. and in the identity of that mass of people as a political actor well in kind of wrapping up my thoughts on the book i also kind of want to make a um a sobering point here unfortunately which is just despite this Japan was and to this day continues to be dominated by capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, despite amazing people like Kobayashi doing amazing work, the capitalist state was so repressive and so violent that they killed him and they killed many, many other people um, of their own people and certainly plenty of other people. Good God, the things they did to China and Korea um, turned the stomach um, you know, levels of violence comparable to what the Nazis were doing um, in Europe. And the struggle for liberation rages on here. It rages on in Japan. Um, that's why this was read so thoroughly in 2008. That's why we're discussing it now. Um, and we can, of course, sit with the tragedy that the revolution was not able to be accomplished then, no doubt. We can sit with the tragedy of what happened to Kobayashi, but we also have to, you know, keep in mind that we're still here. Um, and guess what? The crab cannery ship, their first strike failed. They were repressed. They were beaten. And what did they say? One more time. There had to be a 1905 before there was a 1917, you know? Yeah. And guess what? Maybe it's two more times. Maybe it's three more times. And, and maybe it's a hundred more times. I don't care. It's gonna get done. And once it's done, it's done. It's going to happen. People, we will see the fulfillment of the promise of the crab cannery ship. We will see the fulfillment of the promise of Kobayashi's life and legacy. These sacrifices will have been worth it. And all the Asakawas in this world, they will not be in power anymore. They will not have the ability to repress as they have repressed the uh, as the Russians sort of said in this book, as they were able to mime, the proletariat is going to rise up. The proletariat will inherit that and the boss will, I don't know, imagine me um, miming someone being very sad because he has to work like a normal human being now. Um, Joss, do you have any final thoughts before we close this one out? You were looking on uh, Twitter today, and the tweet is gone now, 
but somebody was uh somebody was going off accusing PSL of being Hamas or whatever, right? Yeah, and accusing, you know, in general, anyone who is standing up for the cause of Palestinian liberation. Um, which talk about a people that say one more time. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, and they and, and will get their freedom. And we are seeing the beginning of the end of the apartheid state as we talk right now, by the way, um, in, in November of 2023. Yes. But uh yeah, we saw saw some guys. Saw some people basically saying anyone who stands up for um, the Palestinian cause and for liberation is Hamas. Right, exactly. And, you know, I mean, first of all, of course, it's it's part of a united front, right? All of political Palestine has joined in, right? And they say, look, if we point our guns at anybody but the Israeli occupying force, right, everybody dies. Mm. So we got it, you know, we got to set us out our differences and team up. But, you know, quite apart from that, quite apart from the, you know, ridiculosity of implying that this, you know, liberation struggle has money to throw at uh, pretending to be American socialists, right? The point that you made that I quite liked was, look, if we accept your premise that, you know, our organization is secretly these uh, these these uh, national liberation fighters that spend their time blowing up tanks by hand, mm-hmm. your plan is to shit talk these people on Twitter. <laughs> people that just like three sixty no scope billion dollar tanks just for <laughs> like just on the regular and post themselves doing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh man! You spend you spend enough time. I mean, I mean, I guess my larger point is, you know, you spend enough time whipping on whipping on a whole class of people. They will eventually whip back, and you do not come back from that. There is a point at which the whippers do not come back from it. Well, folks, we appreciate you listening this week. Next week, we will be Joss. Am I right? Battle Royales next week. Battle Royale by Koshun Takami. Now, of course, we know Keep it about Japanese. Yes, we know about the, uh, Jacob, you laid out the sordid uh, history of Japan, you know, its history of imperialism, you know, the CIA funding the uh, Liberal Democratic Party to the hilt in the decades since and turning Japan into a client state. So Battle Royale is a dystopia set in an alternate future where Japan actually won the Pacific War. Um, Whether they fought, whether they outright won against uh, the United States or at least fought them to a standstill, I don't quite recall, but it's in that it's it's in a sort of era where the the uh you know the fascists or you know the you know the imperial cult call it what you will one mm. and within that context comes a very familiar genre to anybody familiar with the hunger games anybody familiar with uh player unknown's battlegrounds or call of duty warzone you know battle royale what happens when a group of people, in this case students, is forced to fight over the scraps of what the repressive state is uh, is willing to offer. It's violent, it's gory, it's bloody. It's also it's also pretty fun in it in its own in its own weird way. So look forward to that. Hunger games? I hardly know her games. Now, please enjoy this new outro music. See everybody. Peace out.
you for listening to Socialist Shelf Radio.